Well, I hope you're happy with yourselves celebrating a lucky, 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 lucky win. A deflection, a gift, scraping a win against newly promoted Fulham. What have you got to say for yourselves? 12 points, top of the table. Thanks very much. Celebration Welcome to It's an Arsenal Thing. I'm your host, Tom, and with me is a man who is omnipresent, he's incorrigible, he's reliable, and quite possibly the worst person to invite on a stag night. It's the groom's doom, known as Silent Dave. <laughs> on the menu tonight, we reveal the sexiest fans in the Premiership. enough of that. Connor delivers his match report in Gonna Get Into It. It was Fulham this time at the Emirates against Arsenal. Lauren's here to round up all the latest WSL in what could be an even better season than last. I am in the gun room with Paul to dissect the match and offer balanced opinion. We've got a bumper section on shirts. We give you the top five Arsenal shirts. Is yours in there? You can find out in a while. There's a little something from the archives. And of course, the musical interlude. It's an Arsenal thing. It's an Arsenal thing. Believe it or not, it's an Arsenal thing. With football and transfers, you know, you'll bring. You're listening to It's an Arsenal thing. From the Arsenal archives, eight months after winning his first medal in the 1987 Littlewoods Cup final, Tony Adams became Arsenal's youngest ever skipper at the age of 21. It was a position he would hold until his retirement, but in those early days of captaincy, Adams had to endure plenty of stick. The Daily Mirror famously depicted Adams with donkey ears the morning after he scored at both ends in Arsenal's 1-1 draw with Manchester United. Opposition fans soon latched on. Adams' response was simple. He just pointed at a growing collection of medals. Eight weeks after his Old Trafford experience, the Arsenal captain led his team to the title on that famous night at Anfield. Two years later, he had his hands on the same trophy and a domestic cup double would follow in 1993. The taunts continued and they weren't helped by a spell in prison in December 1990, which fueled the fire. But Tony Adams always had that ability to have the last laugh. On base, David Seaman. On drums, Lee Dixon. Nigel Winterburn on congas. Enclaves, Stevie Bold. Tony Adams on... Ooh. 
Orchestra would like to thank you for listening this evening, and we'll leave you with Bruce Rioch on bagpipes. Right, it's time for Connor, and gotta get into it.
Time to get into it. Round four. And our impressive early season winning streak almost came to an unlikely end at home to newly promoted Fulham on Saturday evening at the Emirates Stadium. As Mikel Arteta tasted victory on what was his 100th Premier League game as Arsenal manager, his spirited gunners fought back to beat a tough enough Fulham side by two goals to one to maintain our impressive 100% record and keep us two points clear at the top of the Premier League table. It's the first time the Arsenal have won their first four league games since the 2004-2005 Premier League season. Well then, it wasn't quite as plain sailing as many might have expected. We were frustrated in the first half as former gunner Bern Leno made a couple of crucial stops to keep Fulham level at the break. Gabriel had then gifted Fulham a 56th minute opener, which came completely against the run of play. Inform goal-scoring machine Alexander Mitrovic robbing our Brazilian in our 18-yard box before slotting past Ramsdale to score his fourth Premier League goal of the season in as many games. Thankfully though, we weren't behind for too long, but Kai Osaka's brilliant burst of pace and through ball set up our man of the match, Martin Odegaard, to score his third league goal of the season eight minutes later. That's three Premier League goals and two outings for our Norwegian captain. Sensational stuff from Mr Odegaard. While Arteta sent on Eddie Nketiah once again for the final few minutes, this time though in desperate search of a late winner. It eventually came five minutes from the end when Gabriel was this time gifted a goal. Former teammate Leno finally letting his guard down to quite literally hand us the victory after failing to collect a routine Gabriel Martinelli corner. Inketia was rightfully praised by many Arsenal supporters for his contribution in the final half an hour as he continuously made a nuisance of himself alongside Jesus up front after replacing Kieran Tierney in a very attack-minded change made by our Spanish chief in the 61st minute. Team news then, and Arteta was forced to make two enforced changes to his now seemingly preferred starting eleven, which he opted for in our three opening league games. Both Thomas Partey and Alexander Zinchenko picked up knocks in training on Friday and were, as a result, left out of the matchday squad as a precaution. Kieran Tierney and Mohamed Elneny came in for their first Premier League starts of the season and both put in reasonably solid performances, but they lack both the class and fluidity that Party and Zinchenko offer us, especially when we're in possession. Rob Holding was brought on for Odegaard in stoppage time to make his first appearance of the domestic campaign, while Tommy Assi was once again brought on to add composure and stability at the back for the final few minutes. We completely dominated then, pretty much from start to finish, enjoying 72% of possession, getting 22 shots away, and 8 shots on target, compared to Fulham's 11 shots on goal and just the 3 on target. We created our first meaningful chance then of the evening in the 14th minute, when the exceptional Martin Odegaard, who was really in the mood and at his creative best for the encounter, sensationally picked out Gabriel Jesus, who had cleverly pe- peeled away at the back post. The Brazilian's first time layoff found the incoming Granite Xhaka, who with his weaker right foot could only volley wide from a tight enough angle. We continued to look for what would have been a deserved lead and we created our best chance of the game in the 32nd minute. This time Odegaard producing a perfectly weighted through ball for Saka thrown onto. And then one-on-one with Leno, our former German number one spread himself well to deny our up-for-it young winger his first official Premier League goal of the season. Two minutes before that though, Gabriel Martinelli almost found the net from a direct corner only for his wicked delivery to strike Leno's crossbar. Fulham, who were very grateful to their keeper for keeping them on level terms at the break 
silenced the Emirates in the 56th minute to take a shock lead. Saka found Gabriel, who was inside his own 18-yard box, and the Brazilian controlled well and looked comfortable. All of a sudden, though, our Brazilian panicked when he saw no option for the pass and Mitrovic stole the ball on the edge of the box before slotting in an ice-cool finish. Kieran Tierney, who looked extremely uncomfortable tucking inside like, like Zinchenko had done so often in her opening three-league games, should really have burst out to the left-back position to offer Gabriel the pass. But Tierney wasn't available. He was tucking inside and Gabriel really had no option to pass what would have been a very predictable pass out to Tierney in the left-back position. Really poor from Arteta to ask Tierney to play that kind of role, but the Scottish man really should have taken initiative to get his teammate out of trouble there. Arteta, though, credit where credit's due, responded immediately, and Ketia coming on for Tierney. And our equaliser duly arrived in the 64th minute when Saka picked up possession with his back to goal in a relatively central position, and a sudden swivel and excellent injection of pace allowed him to roll the ball into Odegaard's path on the edge of the Fulham box, and the Norwegian's first-time effort took a slight deflection to divert the ball past Leno. And well, before that, Mitrovic had a decent chance, a header well saved by Odegaard from a Fulham corner kick. But well, after relentless pressure, our winner finally came in the 85th minute, five minutes from time, when Leno failed to collect Martinelli's in-swinging corner, allowing the alert Gabriel to tap home to atone for his earlier error. And well, it's Steven Gerrard's Aston Villa next up at the Emirates on Wednesday night before we visit Manchester United at Old Trafford this coming Sunday. Can we make it five wins from five on Wednesday? Big test coming against United. It finished at the Emirates on Saturday. Arsenal 2, Fulham 1. Eddie and catcher, Eddie and catcher, a number 14 who finds the back of the net. Yeah, he's cool and laid back and you can definitely betcha. House of your shirt on Eddie and catcher. Our top five football shirts, obviously it's Arsenal. We're not bothered about anybody else's shirts. They all look like rags, something to clean the car with. At number five, it's the 2005-2006 home shirt, sponsored by O2, known as the Red Current or fondly known as the Berry. Got that one in the wardrobe. It was Arsenal's tribute and farewell to Highbury. I found a final game shirt against Wigan on eBay, complete with all the badges and all that malarkey. 180 quid. So if you've got that in your wardrobe, ka-ching. At number four, 1991-1992 away kit, known as the Bruised Banana. The sponsor was JVC. This kit has become a regular in wardrobes up and down the land it's become also a mini industry spawning pencil cases cups phone cases and even covid masks at number three it's the 2001 2002 away kit it's the gold one with the blue sponsor was sega and it's hard to see this kit without Henri bergkamp or pires in it it's just a quality quality kit still love it at number two it's the classic red and white 1969 to 1978 no sponsor no badge just a sexy white cannon and at number one it's the 2002-2004 invincible shirt we went all season without being beaten but you don't hear us going on about it you don't you, we don't talk about gold trophies we don't talk about any of <laughs> arsenal went unbeaten all season got a gold trophy people just tell all your friends bring people up you don't even know them. Just ring them up and say, oh, Arsenal went unbeaten all season and got a gold trophy. And then put the phone down. That's all you have to do. <laughs> While we are talking about shirts, people ask, which Arsenal player sells the most shirts? 
uh, well, he doesn't sell, his name sells the most shirts, okay? Um, he's not on hawking on the street corner. Get your Arsenal shirts here. Only 75 quid. Put a fiver on. Well, it's for your troubles, isn't it? Martin Odegaard is the most popular name on any new Arsenal shirt, according to Red Action Gunners. In a report where the AFC commercial team informed them that Martin Odegaard tops the popularity rankings for name and number. So let's give you the names of the players. The top five selling Arsenal shirts with the names of the players on the back. At number five, it's Tommy Asu, unsurprisingly. At number four, it's Smith Rowe. At number three, it's Martinelli. At number two, it's Saka. And at number one, it's Martin Odegaard. That's according to Red Action AFC. Odegaard! Odegaard! He's the captain of the Arsenal and they call him Odegaard. Odegaard! Odegaard! He's the captain of the Arsenal and they call him Odegaard! It's time for Lauren and going to get into it. Now, before Arsenal's first game against Manchester City, Lauren answers the most frequently asked questions on the WSL. So off the back of the Euros, the interest in women's football has reached new heights. Players have been quick to encourage new fans who maybe haven't been to women's games before to get down and support their local teams this season. With the WSL kicking off on the 10th of September, I thought I'd take this opportunity to offer some insight so that you are in the know and ready for what is undeniably the most anticipated season yet. I'm Lauren Dempsey and I'll be bringing you news on all things Arsenal women this season. So the WSL, the Women's Super League or the Barclays Women's Super League was founded in 2010. It replaced the FA Women's Premier League National Division as the highest level of women's football in England. It's run by the FA, who you're going to see very shortly weren't always the biggest fan of women's football. But what else is there to know? I've taken the top 11 most searched questions on Google, the starting 11, if you will, and I'll be answering them right here for you. No need to thank me. Question one. When did the FA ban women's football? So women were never entirely banned from playing football. However, the FA prohibited them from playing on the grounds of affiliated clubs in 1921. Just a year previous, on Boxing Day 1920, 53,000 spectators made their way to Goodison Park to watch Dick Kerr's ladies, a famous factory team from Preston, beat rivals St. Helens 4-0. 53,000. That's a bigger crowd than some men's games attract, even nowadays. In 1971, 50 years later, the ban was lifted. That being said, the FA did not issue an apology until 2008, 87 years later. Question 2. Why was women's football banned for 50 years? So the FA's decision came about because they deemed the game as quite unsuitable for females and claimed that it ought not to be encouraged. But was it just that simple? There was a lot of speculation that many people were jealous that the women were attracting larger crowds than men on some occasions. It was also rumoured that the FA were unhappy as they didn't have control of the money being generated from the women's games, most of which were held for charity. Yet, despite the FA's disliking, the women's game continued, sometimes being played in parks or at rugby grounds, which had much smaller capacities. A Guardian article put it perfectly. 
the effect of the ban was devastating because it extinguished crowd sizes in an instant. Question three, how many teams are in the Women's Super League? So there are 12 teams in the WSL. This season, they are Arsenal, Aston Villa, Brighton & Hove, Chelsea, Everton, Leicester City, newly promoted Liverpool, Man City, Man United, Reading, Tottenham and West Ham. Only two teams have competed in every WSL season since 2011. They are Arsenal, of course, and Chelsea. Question four, how many games are in the Women's Super League? In total, 132 matches will be played. With 22 match days, the season gets underway in September and runs until the end of May. There is a mid-season winter break, and this year it will be from the 19th of December through to the 13th of January. In addition to the league, teams will compete in domestic cups, so the FA Cup and the League Cup, very similar to the men's. Question five, what is the league below the Women's Super League? The championship is the league below the WSL. It also has 12 teams and has already gotten underway for the 2022-23 campaign. Unlike the Men's Premier League, only one team is relegated from the WSL to the Championship, and in turn only one team is promoted. As I mentioned, Liverpool are this season's WSL newest additions, after they finished top of the Championship last season with a comfortable 11-point lead. Birmingham, on the other hand, finished last, which sees them slip down to the Championship for the first time since the WSL was founded. Question six is how much do WSL players make? So the WSL is a professional league, meaning players can make a living for their work. How much exactly and is it in any way comparable to the men? Simply put, no. Women are still being paid considerably less than their male counterparts. A Telegraph article from March of this year claimed that the WSL's highest earners still make 50 times less than the leading men. Some players are earning as little as 20k a year, and there have been reports of them being, quote, priced out of professional football due to the low wages. On average, though, it's estimated that the typical salary in the WSL is about 30k. There are exceptions, of course. Chelsea's Sam Kerr, who I'm going to speak about later on, is now said to be the top earner in the women's game in England, earning about 400k a year. Certainly not a bad number. I wouldn't turn my nose up to it, but when we compare it to the men, it is much lower, of course. Question seven, who is top of the Women's Super League? Great question. Currently, it is... Yes, it's Arsenal. That's purely because of alphabetical order. The season is yet to get underway, okay? So the 10th of September, we have the opening fixture, United against Spurs. A day later, on the 11th, Arsenal take on City to get their campaign underway. Question 8, who won the Women's Super League 2022? Despite only losing one game in the league last season, Arsenal finished second to an outstanding Chelsea team. It did go right down to the final game of the season. Chelsea played United, who went ahead on two occasions, but the Blues were strong enough to win 4-2 in the end and retain the title. If you don't know the name Sam Kerr, learn it and do not forget it, okay? Not only is she the reported highest earner in the league, the Australian forward was the league's top scorer and was awarded basically every single individual trophy she could have been. So I'm going to go through the list. It was the London Football Awards FA WSL Player of the Year, 
Football Writers Association, w, uh, sorry, Women's Footballer of the Year, the WSL Player of the Season, she got WSL Goal of the Season, PFA Players Player of the Year, PFA WSL Fans Player of the Year, and finally, of course, Chelsea Women's Player of the Year. On top of all that, she is on the cover of FIFA 23 alongside Mbappe. She is the first woman to appear on the global cover. I mean, you don't get all that recognition for nothing. She is an exceptional talent, as painful as that is to admit. Question nine is, who is the most successful women's team in England? It is, of course, the Arsenal, who hold a record for all domestic competitions that they have competed in. They've won 15 league titles, 14 FA Cups, 5 League Cups, 10 National League Cups, 5 FA Community Shields, and they are currently the only English club to have ever won the Women's Champions League. I think the most impressive stat about the Arsenal women is between the years 2003 and 2009, they had a 108-game-long unbeaten run 108 games okay so it ended on March 29 2009 and before that the last time they had lost a match was October 16 2003 can you comprehend that can you actually comprehend that that's five years undefeated absolute madness it almost it almost I'm not going to say it does but it almost brings a new meaning to the invincibles does it not if the men are the invincibles the women are certainly the invisibles Uh, in that time they won 102 matches drawing six losing none 461 goals were scored by the arsenal and 74 were conceded it's an absolutely outstanding achievement they won seven straight fa women's Premier League titles in the 2000s and they were the top they were the pinnacle currently they are ninth in UEFA's club rankings behind Chelsea who are sixth and Man City who are eight so although Arsenal's winning streak may be over it has benefited the league immensely it makes for a much more open and competitive run-in throughout the season Arsenal were very close last season and there's absolutely nothing to say that they couldn't push Chelsea all the way to the end again this time around question 10 who is the best women's team in England I mean if you're listening to this podcast I think we can both agree on who the best women's football team is no no I'll leave it there question 11 where can I watch women's super league UK you can watch the WSL on Sky and BBC Before the 21-22 season, it was announced that a landmark multi-million pound deal with two broadcasters had been signed. It's estimated to be worth about 8 million a season over the course of three seasons. The involvement of both media bodies is absolutely huge and shouldn't be overlooked. Sky offers the women's game the highly sophisticated element of match analysis and stat breakdown, as they do with the men's game. But by showing matches on the BBC, it keeps it completely accessible to encourage as many people as possible to watch it. All other games that aren't televised will be available on the FA Player. So every weekend, Sky will show two fixtures and the BBC will have one. All the other games will be available on the FA Player. Additionally, and even better, you can get down and support the teams in person. Arsenal play most of their home matches at Meadow Park and on occasion at the Emirates. 
It's a great opportunity to get down and support the women. And generally speaking, tickets are a lot cheaper than the men. What's not to love? So that is it. We've had a look at the 11 most asked questions about the WSL. I hope you enjoyed it and found it informative. Next week, before the season gets underway, I'll be looking at Arsenal's opening fixture versus Man City. It doesn't get much bigger than this. Last season, second versus third. It's going to be big. It's going to be explosive. And I, for one, cannot wait. See you then. Liverpool fans have climbed to the top of the table for the sexiest supporters for any Premier League team, according to a survey by Free Super Tips. The Reds are top of the list for the best looking fans, really? And the ones that supporters most want to sleep with. Manchester United fans secured 18% of the vote. What, with the Nevilles? Come on. Uh, 17% of the vote. Southampton fans have the unfortunate pleasure of being named the worst looking supporters out of all 20 Premier League clubs. And also, here's one, 55% of supporters also admitted they would love to have sex with a rival fan. Saucy. Uh, right, so in first place, it's Liverpool with 26%, Chelsea, 20%, Manchester United, 18%, Arsenal come in at 17%. That's not right, is it? No, I'm not having that. Uh, so, Arsenal, uh, 37%. And at number five is Burnley. No longer with us, but they got 10% of the vote. Right down the bottom, you can see people like uh, Man City, 8%. Aston Vanilla, 7%. Uh, we're not even going to mention those lot down the road. Crystal Palace, 6%. Everton, 6%. West Ham, 3%. Wolverhampton, 3%. A uh, poor old Southampton, 1%. It's time to enter the gun room for a natter. Welcome to the gun room. The old celebration police are out the back. Uh, with me in the gun room, uh, we've got no Jay, we've got no Mitch, but we have got Paul, the, the voice of reason, the voice of balance. <laughs> How are you, Paul? Uh, delighted to be on the show again, Tom. Thanks for having me on. Looking forward to an interesting discussion. Pissy Jay and Mitch can't join us, but I'm sure there's so much to get through from the weekend's action. I'm sure it's going to be a lively discussion as well. Um, first off, a bit of a strange one. A Bamiyang, a Pierre-Emerick Bamiyang was threatened with firearms, iron bars, and they, apparently he was even beaten up and they threatened his wife. We wish him well. He's no longer our player, but that doesn't stop us caring for him and his family. And we wish them all well. Um, sad to hear as well that Jez, a fellow podcaster, and his wife have been attacked for their views, their negative views, supposedly, on Mikko Arteta's reign. I don't see why he should uh, come up against that type of treatment. Um, no, no, it's I mean, I mean, my fan debate is part and parcel, part and parcel of football, and there's lots of Evertonian fans I might not agree with, but you know, I do totally respect their opinion, and, you know, and it's coming from it's coming from a place of default feeling. So yeah, I mean, attacking fellow fans is it's just to me, it's never really on. It's absolutely mad. Um, well, it's another pod, another shirt, pink, red, and white, black, and now we've got Jamaican jigsaw. <laughs> Only £99 to £115. We might talk about shirts later on. Anyway, let's get to that game. It's had some sort of weird feedback, hasn't it, really, over the last sort of day or so. The celebration police being out and about saying that, you know, it was only Fulham, newly promoted Fulham, which we'll try and get back to at the end of the pod. But for me, I mean, it was uh, it was a good result, especially because we found our character base it was always going to be interesting, Paul, when we went behind. 
because we've yeah. had the rub of the green so far. Yeah, and apparently, Tom, I don't know if you saw the stat today, but it's the first time since December 13 that Arsenal have conceded the first goal in the first half and come back to win in the second half, which is it's quite, a, quite a long period of time. I think you learn more from those games than what you do against a 3-0 possession beaten Bournemouth. I think you learn far more about the resilience of the team, the character of the team. And you know, make no mistake, Fulham under Marcus Silva are a pretty decent side. Now, they, they, they should have beaten Liverpool in the first game of the season. Now, they're a strong side. They've always got a goal scorer in Petr Mitrovic. They battle, they battle hard. They've got a really good left-back in, in Anthony Robertson, who's, who's ex-Everson, or I really see Hardy when he's at Everson. So they've got the means of a good competitive team there. And also, the worst time, in my opinion, to play a newly promoted team is the first kind of six, seven games of the season. They're still on a high. They've still got the promotion bounce. You know, the, the fans are behind them, the full of optimism. So, yeah, it, it was, in my opinion, it was a really tough call for Arsenal, a really tough test now. And you don't want to get in a situation where, you know, you're really frustrated, the crowd gets frustrated because chances are being squandered. But I thought the crowd stuck with the team. And even when they were one goal behind, there wasn't a feeling of disillusionment or resentment creeping in. And I like the way Ramsdale tried to rally the crowd to get them behind the team as well. And I think most fans appreciate, OK, we're losing it. But we've been on the front foot for most of the game. And uh, I just think Arsenal up their game another gear in, in the last half hour in particular. And to me, once the equaliser went in, there was only going to be one team that's going to win the game. But it was a huge test of Arsenal's resilience, capabilities, a huge examination of, you know, can you come back and go a goal behind in what is a London derby? And I think you know, from every level of the assessments and the challenge that I put towards them in the game, it, it, it was a really, really strong performance. And you, know, you, you get three points for you know for winning two one. You get three points for winning nine nil. But sometimes the two one victory teaches you far more about the size. Absolutely. Instantly, Paul, it was Mikel Arteta. I love the bit of the stat that he brought in there. He's, he's bringing stats now. He's bringing his own <laughs> stats in a briefcase. Mikel Arteta's hundredth game. So how does that stack up? Mikel Arteta has won fifty three, drawn sixteen, and lost thirty one. Put that up against Arsene Wenger. God bless him. Wenger won 54, drawn 30 and lost 16. Incidentally, Paul, the lineup is is another thing to take on board. The lineup when we played Fulham 16 months ago was Ryan Bellerin holding Gabriel, Saka, El Nenny, Xhaka, Caballos, Smithrow, Martinelli and Lacazette. That's that's a massive change round. And and I think from afar uh, a lot of people aren't getting the groundwork, the spade work that Arteta's had to had to do to to shift it all around. Yeah, and I think he he's uh, at the moment he seems to be showing the uh, indication that the blend between experienced and young players can be really difficult to marry and and you know, for it to be successful. But at the moment he's making all the right calls in terms of um, the stars eleven he's putting out. Good use of substitutions on Saturday as well. You know, being being on Enkesi on sixty minutes gives him enough time to change the game because I get really frustrated when you you're looking for a goal and the manager throws on a strike with about seven minutes to go. You know, they haven't really got a chance to go to pace and speed the game. So you know Enkesi with more deadly finishing could have made a more convincing victory. But despite that, his stress, the fact there was another attacker to occupy the bottom back four really made a difference, had an impact on the game. And you know, I think people forget as well that Arteta's the youngest manager in the Premier League. When you think like, yeah, I hate to say this, yeah, and clock took about five, six, seven years to get, to, to get Liverpool to to where they are now. 
And I think you know, it takes time for teams to progress. And certainly a top four finish and challenging for the title of the season would be a massive indication of the progress that Arsenal have made on the Arteta. Right, let's go through that lineup. Uh, it was Aaron Ramsdale, Ben White, Saliba, uh, Gabriel, Kieran Tierney, uh, Mohamed El Neni, Granit Xhaka, Bakayo Saka, Martin Odegaard, Gabriel Martinelli and Gabriel. We like a Gabriel, don't we? We do. You, you can't beat a team of angels. Yeah, yeah, just get them all in. And Gabriel <laughs> Jesus, a Jesus even. Um, there was no party and no Zinchenko. Uh, apparently ankle and knee injuries. So both the other guys replaced. They didn't, El Nenny and Tierney, they were quite off the boil. Yeah, I thought El thought, Nenny was quite a weak link in midfield. I mean, obviously you watch Arsenal far more than me. So it's kind of all about why Smith Rowe maybe haven't been given opportunity in that game, whether his role didn't quite fit into that lineup or not, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, but uh, Kieran Taylor, I've always rated the ball, but I, I just thought on Saturday he didn't, he wasn't quite up to his normal standards. Uh, and I think on a previous part, we, you know, we've kind of uh, been quite enthusiastic about Zinchenko's contribution and what he brings to the team in terms of pace, commitments, etc. And I think you saw it as well. You know, when he joined them, the celebrations for the winning goal, how committed he is to the Arsenal cause and the team spirit that Arteta built into the squad there. So, yeah, and I think even when you win, you're going to have one or two players who don't quite perform to the top level. As long as you're seven or eight, you'll perform to the top level. You've probably got enough to see over there. So, yeah, maybe you could argue against a stronger team. The weakness Ellen any showed in, mid- in midfield could have been taken far more advantage of. But it was a difficult fixture, as I said, at the start of the pod. It was a a good victory, and it was a great chance to take Tierney off after after sixty minutes because because apparently he wasn't as effective as he, as his manager hoped he would be, and that kind of changed the game. Yeah, I think let's be fair to them. El Nenny hasn't had a sniff. Uh, I, don't, I think even in pre season he was used very sparingly, and Tierney's come back from uh, a bit of an injury. He's out more than he's in, so uh, he's probably full of ring rust. As I said, there's more of these types of games to come and the, the expectation levels are huge. If if you'd said to your to your fan base at the start of the season, after four games, we're going to be have a hundred percent record and be top of the table, then you know I'm not sure everyone would have would have said that's gonna happen. <laughs> but but it has. And you know, it's one it's one of these things that the longer you keep the unbeaten run going, that you no, know, and that's why Saturday was such a big test coming back from going behind. Keep the unbeaten run going, you know, keep the optimism going, get the belief into the team that they can come back from season to go. And then, you know, you, you're well on the way to mount an effective challenge this season. So, I'd, you know, if I was having one concern about Arsenal, I think it would be you know, looking at the options on the bench on Saturday. And, and uh, I was kind of comparing them to the options a certain t- other North London team had on Sunday on their bench. And to me, there seems to be more options for that for your rival team than what they did for Arsenal. Now, whether Arteta is looking to bring in more reinforcements during the year before the, the transfer deadline arrives, I'm not sure. But certainly, given how intense this first separate weeks of the season is going to be, where most teams are playing two games a week, you know, the, the, yeah, I think it's important to have intense depth in the squad, particularly you know, in, in this season where five substitutions can be used. I think it has got better, but at least you can look there now and you think, oh, Enketia can come on. And I do like this five sub rule. I know it's yeah. at its, uh, its knockers and all that sort of thing, but I think in the modern game to prevent injuries and uh, with all these cup competitions going on, you've got to have five subs, surely. 
And uh, I'm sure Arteta is going to do something. Um, we had a lot of possession in that first half, Paul. Uh, it ended nil-nil. If there were any complaints from me as an Arsenal fan, it was just that we weren't really mm-hmm. clinical in front of goal. I think this match could have ended. We could have been, I don't know, five or six to the good. But we're just not clinical. And that's been our problem for a long time. And I said to you in a text, if we had two Jesuses, we'd be <laughs> yeah. fine because he'd be setting yeah. up for himself, wouldn't yeah. he? yeah. Yeah. But that he, yeah. he, he set things up and there was no one to put it in. Uh, yeah, uh, uh, that's a fair point. And I think um, Jesus' contributions to the side is not just about creating opportunities for, for forwards and scoring goals. It, his all-around play is hugely impressive. He, he's putting tackles in the midfield. He's winning back possession. He's leading by example. So even when he's not a goal-scoring threat himself, he's still creating opportunities for others. And every time he gets the ball in the opposition penalty, you can just see defenders are terrified of what he's going to do. Is he going to run at me? Is he going to dribble me? Is he going to play a one-two and get past me? So he's always going to be a handful. I know every good striker has one or two games where they don't score. Maybe that was you know, that was the game for him on Saturday. But yeah, I think given the amount of possession and chances that Arsenal creating, you always felt that the goal would come some stage. Uh, so it was quite surprising when Fulham took the lead against the runner play. But I'd be far more concerned if the side weren't creating the chances, if the side you know, didn't have possession. Uh, and certainly, I think you saw, you know, when Enketia came on, the attack and threat kind of went up a different level. Yeah, I thought Enketia, he's, he's had people saying that he didn't really do much and he missed three sitters, but he was a real handful. Mm. I think that's one of his better performances in an Arsenal shirt. Um, he did have a little bit of a run in one of the cups and he was good there. Um, right, let's move on to the 36th minute. Uh, ben White got a yellow card for the type of tackle your nan might put in at the bargain sales in January. <laughs> yeah, it, 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 I, I mean, I, I, I think sometimes the, the inconsistency amongst referees is, is just increasing frustration from week to week. And I know it's an easy story to bang on about, but yeah, to, to me, it, it, it just seemed quite a, 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 an overzealous response to, 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 the, to that level of challenge, really. Um, 45 minutes, Jesus got into a bit of a tangle with Palfina uh, after a tackle on Saka. He needs to be a bit more disciplined and a little bit more careful, doesn't he? Uh, great player, love him to bits, but he's really got to walk away. Yeah, I mean, I, I thought that, that was quite intriguing to watch because I don't really remember Jesus getting so heated when playing for Man, for Man City in the past two or three seasons. So you you could take, put a positive spin on that and say, well, is this not an example of his commitment? So he's balls into the team ethos. He's standing up for his fellow players. Yes, you're right. It's a risky strategy because you know, the last thing you want is your best player on the pitch. Your main goals going threat to to have to leave the field early because of a couple of rash challenges. But you know, you, you you could take the view that actually this is quite good. You know, he he's committed to the cause. He he's a team player. He's not being an individual. So no, I'm I'm sure a quiet word at half time points out to him, look, okay, you know that that was good, but you no, know, back off and tackles a little bit, and then you know um, he will hopefully learn from that experience. I like to see a little bit of that. I like to oh, see likewise, a little bit yeah. of spice. Yeah. I think particularly uh, when the game's tied at nil-nil, it's coming to half-time and you worry whether there might be some frustration from the fans at Adios was the total. It's good to see a player put in a bit of effort. And I also think it's a good example to set to the rest of the team as well. 56 minutes. Uh, Mitrovic, probably their best player on the park, wasn't he, really? He was a real handful. He's a big guy, solid He's a nasty type of player as well, isn't he? He likes to get in there and upset you. Um, he caught Gabriel napping. <laughs> it was a terrible mistake, wasn't it? It was, but I mean, I think 
It partly came from the pass uh, from Saka, which really put Gabriel in a different situation because you look at that, that, that period of play again. I mean, Saka's over on the, the right-hand touchline. He's got options to hit it long down the wing and then he, he kind of turns back himself and hits a looping lob of a pass into the into the penalty area. Now, you can see Mitrovic's reaction. He's thinking straight away, you know, Gabriel's going to have some trouble dealing with this instantly. Now, yeah, he did delay a bit too long, and I, I accept that. But it was a neat. I think the pass from Saka put him in a really, really difficult situation. Yes, he he could have held, he could have dealt with it better. And when you're playing as a Mitrovic, you you really have got to use your strength and your upper body strength to to stand up and not dig out the ball. Otherwise, he, he he's just going to bundle you over and take the chance. So, yeah, I say a comment. I'd say. 75% Gabriel, 25% Saka. Uh, but yeah, it, it was, it was a, a daft goal to give away. And particularly at the time when you could just sense a bit of frustration was coming in that the opening goal hadn't arrived for the home team. It was quite re- weird, really, because he didn't shut him down, did he? He, he? he kind of, he had about three touches on it and he, he opened the door for him because he went yeah. side on and he couldn't get a touch behind that ball. And, uh, Mitrovic was away. But as you say, it was, um, uh, a bad ball into him, so I think we've got to give him something for that. And he he looked genuinely upset. But it was yeah. nice that Odegaard went up and said, "Yeah, yeah. don't worry about it." Yeah. I mean, that's yeah. a real captain's thing. Um, do uh, you yeah. think we uh, can and, and as well, and as well, Tom, I like the way he put his head, his shares over his head straight away after because after that mistake, didn't he? Because some players will start pointing at other uh, uh, other teammates and trying to do to to put the blame with them. But he took responsibility, which I thought was a good sign. Yeah, so again, the saying. crowd didn't get on him as well, no, which, no. which I liked. Do you think, uh, on the size of Mitrovic and the problems that he created, do you think Arsenal could do with a a different option, someone a bit bulky, a bit bigger, someone who offers something different? Yeah, I've always been a huge advocate of a plan B for teams. You know, when sometimes if if you know the, the neat intricate footwork is not paying dividends, sometimes you need to get the defenders a different threat to cope with. And you know, certainly if you're hanging on, say a nil-nil playing against Arsenal, you just dealt with you dealt with the first of Jesus, and then suddenly the last 20 minutes, Mitrovic comes on to play up front with them. You suddenly think, oh God, yeah, this is going to make the last the closing minutes of this game really, really difficult to manage. So yeah, I mean he, he he's I've always rated Mitrovic. I mean, I, I know there was some criticism level that some first poor tally the last time Fulham were in the Premier League, but that, that was a pretty average Fulham team to be honest. But I think yeah, he he also I mean, he he's kind of the type of player I think who thrives on playing in front of a crowd as well. So yeah, I mean to me he's always been a good forward. Uh, you know, he's always been a goal first. And if he were to be available, I think any team in the top six would be looking at at him as an option. It's quite nice to see that uh, you were talking about Fulham the last time we met, and that was managed by Scott Parker. Mm-hmm. It's nice to see he's doing his magic down at Bournemouth, <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> yeah, but uh, I, I wish he could have uh, maybe delayed using his magic for another week or so instead of you know, uh, that calamitous <laughs> collapse at, a, at that place across Stanley Park. And it, it's, it's just, I mean, it, I, I just felt... Uh, so distraught for Bournemouth fans. But if you've made that journey, what, 450 miles, 500 miles, to see your team just absolutely collapse 9-0, it's, it, it, it's I mean, to me, that, that that is totally unacceptable. And you know, the first thing the Bournemouth board needs to be doing is reimbursing those fans for, for, that, for that journey and their support because no fan of a Premier League club should have to put up with that as an away performance, given the riches in the league. 64 minutes, and who else but Martin Odegaard came to the rescue, answering his critics 
what did you make of that goal? I know it took a deflection, but he's an epic player, isn't he? I know we go on about him, me in particular, but he, he's just such a creative player, such an array of skills, and his work rate is phenomenal, Paul. He deserved this goal. Oh, he did. <clears throat> I think throughout the game, I mean, his all-round contributions to the team effort was quite outstanding. <clears throat> like Jesus, he was winning tackles. He was he was he was playing incisive passes into the opposition half, into the opposition penalty area, and uh, it's it's the, and also as well, players who are confident on the ball inspire their teammates to be confident on the ball as well. And also, you know, you know, if you look for an early release ball from defence, you can give it to him. He's going to hold it. He's going to do something with it. You're going to maintain possession. I think the goal. I mean, I've watched it a number of times, and if you look, I'm sure you notice it yourself. We look closely. He almost does like a little step over to get the ball onto his left foot before hitting it into the corner. And it just gave him space. He almost took the defender slightly the wrong way, created an opening. And okay, it took a deflection. But, you know, if you don't shoot, you, you never know what's going to happen. And you know, deflections are part and parcel of football. I've never, I've never, uh, degrade someone's goal because they took a deflection. The fact he took the shot has got enough power to hit the defender and beat your goalkeeper. You know, deserves credit in its own way. To be honest, I thought it was going in anyway. Had yeah, that might defender well done, not yeah, been there, yeah. it would have gone in the opposite corner. Um, yeah, it was it was a great and solid performance. Um, very, very impressive. Ian Wright said, the captain led by example today. He's passing, he's pressing, his composure in finding space. Uh, Mikel Arteta also got on the bandwagon, so he should. He was also full of praise, influence and uh, of his influence. And in difficult moments, he took the ball. That's what he's done. He's really turning this captaincy on its head because Rio Ferdinand said that maybe the in the quiet games, the armband was weighing too heavy on him. Gary Lineker, the king of the potato people and former spud, uh, said, do you know what baffles me a little bit? How Real Madrid let him go when Modric and Cruz are nearly at the end of their career. He said on Match of the Day, it's a strange one because he's so talented. And uh, we can only echo that, really, because 30 million, when you see what United are paying for these players. Yeah, I mean, you could argue that that's been the best bit of transfer business that, that Arsenal done in recent times because um, he, 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 he was a child prodigy, really, wasn't he, when he went from Norway to Real Madrid? OK, it didn't quite work out with Real Madrid for him, but then you kind of look at who was in front of him in the team. I know he had a good spell of El Sofia down as well when, when he was on loan there. So, yeah, he's just, he's just a very, very talented player. I know, and once again, you know, um, you have to give credit to Arteta for, for seeing something in Odegaard that, that, that brought the qualities he's looking for in a captain. And uh, I, I think, you know, it's, it's been an inspired decision. And so far, it's, it's, really, pay, it's really paying dividends. And uh, you need a captain to be, by example. Captain doesn't, doesn't always have to be a Tony Adams-type vocal screaming and shouting at everyone. Sometimes you, you can be a captain by leading by example as well and going and having quiet words with people, encouraging people, like he did with, with, with Gabriel after that mistake for the first goal. So he, he's, he's, developing, he's developing into, A, a really good role model for the rest of the team, but, B, you know, a, a, a captain who's leading by example. He did that with Saliba's own goal as well. He, he got behind him. And I noticed towards the tail end of last season, he did a lot of these little captain things, going around having little words and patting on the back and all that sort of thing. Uh, 86 minutes, Gabriel bundled the ball into the net. Um, it was a very untypical Arsenal goal, wasn't it? But we have got a tendency to try and walk the ball in the net. So it was quite yeah, yeah. refreshing. I was thinking, Paul, during that game, 
Uh, I don't know whether you cast your mind back to last season. Uh, Bernd Leno was playing for us in goal against Brentford, mm. and he didn't look too comfortable. Yeah. When, the third, when the first defen- game of the season. Yeah, yeah, when, yeah, when the defenders were all spread out and the strikers were in there. Mm. So I think one of the goals conceded was where this guy had his arm round Leno. Mm. And I was, I was screaming in the pub, going, get on him. Get on him, pressurise him. And the first time they actually did that was a big bundle of players, wasn't it? Mm. And, and and he kind of lost his way. He, he didn't like it. He'll, he'll stop shots from 25 or 30 mm. yards all day long. But if you put him under pressure, he'll crack. And for me, that was the whole reason that we got that goal. Yeah, I mean, we said Leno struggled to, to, to deal with that cross. And as you say, you, you noticed that tendency last season when, you know, when he was the regular first-series keeper for Arsenal. Uh, and, you know, it's it's a, it's a good type of goal to score, really, because it just shows that, you know, it doesn't have to be all about fantasy football. I know Arsenal, you know, um, in terms of set pieces, were very successful last season. And, you, you know, I'm assuming that being worth on the training ground is something we can try in the last five minutes or so if we haven't, if we need a goal. And, uh, it, Fulham defenders just didn't seem to know who was going to pick up Gabriel or whether they thought Leno was going to deal with this. They didn't, didn't have to. I don't know. And also, when the ball came down after his initial attempt, he was the first one to react to it as well. He was the first one to just stick his foot out and get it over the line, which I thought was really, Really good in in the case of his awareness that he was in space and all it requires just a little touch to get it over the line. And uh, I think as trust on the stars in the pod, the, the the kind of the the synchronicity of, of of the crowd celebration alongside the team celebration just really showed that the the, the team, the supporters, the manager are in a really good place at the moment. Now, Paul, you mentioned it. Um, Mikel Arteta's tactical changes during the game. Tommy Asu and Ketia. And holding, he really got that spot on. I mean, uh, there's been a couple of times that he's made changes and they've been late uh, or they've not been appropriate in my mind. Um, but he got his spot on, didn't he? Yeah, he did. I mean, you know, as I said before, you know, you you're, you need a goal, so you, you bring on an attacker, you take a defender off to try and create more more opportunities for for the team to progress, and that's the way it worked out. And then classic classic, you know, managerial uh, tactics, really. You get the 2-1 lead, there's four minutes to go. Well, you don't need to chase the third goal. All you need to do now is solidify the defence, limit the opportunities for, for the opposition. You know, in some stage, even, even the last three or four minutes, there's going to be a chance for the opposition. And there was that opportunity for Shalaba when he, he, he was kind of unmarked from the, I think, a, a free kick came in and Ramsdale produced a really good save. But yeah, I mean, I mean tactically, that's what you do. You 2 and up, three, four minutes to go. Bring on a defender, slow the game down a little bit and hang on to the lead. All's well that ends well. It's another three it's points, it's... and we we roll over to the next one. So it was 2-1. Uh, the stats are we call Arsenal out first and then Fulham. 22 shots, 11 in reply. Eight shots on target for Arsenal, three for Fulham. 72% possession for Arsenal. Tells its own story. 28 possession for Fulham. 595 passes as opposed to 223. 85% pass accuracy for Arsenal, 61%. For Fulham, um, who would you give Paul in your impartialness and your glorious impartialness? Uh, man of the match, I, I think I'll, I'll take the easy choice. Yeah, I, I think, think Odegaard, I think, I, I think from start to finish, to me, he, he offered everything that he wanted for the player in that type of match. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he just bossed it for me. Yeah, he yeah. ran it. He, it seemed like there was two of him at one stage, he was <laughs> left, right, he was, he was 
picking the ball up. He was pushing forward. He was in the box. He was mm. feeding the channels. Um, I would probably say that's his best performance for Arsenal. There have been a yeah. couple, but that's that's probably the best. Yeah, I, I, and obviously you watch on a far more regular basis than what I do. But yeah, I, I just from start to finish. I have it, to. It, I'm forced <laughs> <laughs> since childhood. <laughs> Um, we can do better, we yeah, said Marco Silva. Um, we deserve to get more from this game. They, Arsenal in brackets, didn't have many clear chances. They had two goals and both were lucky. I think he's uh, overdoing it there. You know, everyone's welcome to their opinion. But uh, you're wrong, Marco. Sort yeah. yourself out. Um, well, obviously, I remember Marco Silva from his time as Everton manager, you know, and there's still a school of thought that kind of thinks he should have been given more time rather than being sacked when, when he was. But he did kind of have a tendency to lose games where the team had taken the lead and he couldn't hang on to the lead. I think at the end, that was kind of his downfall during his time at Goodison. The ability, not not having the ability to see out games from from. From it when you've taken a one goal advantage, I think you saw that again on Saturday. But I think as a manager, he he is much better now than what he was when he was dismissed by Everson. Uh, we're going to deal with the media, Paul, because uh, all this uh, you know celebration, please. They're over celebrating. This is a two-one win against newly promoted Fulham. That was Richard Keys and Andy Gray in their uh, TV program. Keys began. Uh, yeah, well played. You came back to win it and keep the 100% record intact. But they haven't won the title tonight. They won a London derby. Let's not get too carried away. We're four games into the season. You're entitled to celebrate. And the, the fans joined in as well. I don't really understand. I, I think it's Keys and Gray were up there on Sky, weren't they? Got booted off because they're misogynist, sexist behaviour. And now they're down here, and it's a case of trying to generate another audience. Your thoughts? Yeah, it, it, it's probably a case of trying to generate another talking point to get, get all sorts of social media reactions, some, some more clicks and things like that. I was thinking as well, I mean, uh, <clears throat> I don't know how you can criticise fans for over-celebrating because football is such a passionate game that there are enough dark times during the course of the season when you're trudging out the stadium and after abysmal silence after witnessing a... And it's happening now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. When you witness a spiralist display. And when you factor in as well, the amount of money people pay to watch a football game these days, you know, I know the prices are also are really quite high. Factor in your travel costs and all that. Why the hell should you not celebrate a victory? You know, I, I really worry that... It, are we having like like a, a grading system here that you can only celebrate victories against certain teams? Like you can only celebrate a victory like against the top six team. I, I, I don't care whoever somebody, you know, if we scrape a one nil win the last minute at home against Southampton, I'm as ecstatic as if we you know, we've beaten Tottenham one nil. So it's it to me it doesn't matter about the opposition. It's all but it's about the fan experience. You know, you've had it. Very enjoyable afternoon. You've seen your team come back from a game that they could have lost. You've shown outstanding qualities of endurance, resilience, perseverance to get the results. You scored the winning goal with five minutes to go. What the hell? You, you, you should, there should be, you know, the, it should be out your seat, jumping up, celebrating the goal because that, that's what you're a football fan for. You're not there as a, as a, as a dispassionate, disinterested observer. You're there to support the team and you support the team by getting behind them and celebrating and, and saving every minute of the victory. 
Well, I do apologise to the woman in the three cups who was sitting next to me <laughs> when that goal went in because I did. I think I I sort of blew her hearing aid up or something because she was like, ah. But yeah, I mean, you're right. You you pay all that money. You, it doesn't matter who you're playing. You get the result. You're going to celebrate it. In reply, Laura Woods uh, from Squawk Sport said, "Genuinely, what is the point of football if you can't enjoy it in the moment?" She wrote in a reply. On her tweet, it's uh, just a happy team with happy fans who will probably go out tonight and get shit-faced. That's the point. That, Laura, that is, that, we love you. That is exactly the point. And if, if there's a TV job coming up in Sky Sports soon, I think she should be on the consideration. Paul, thanks ever so much for a great pod. Uh, we covered just about everything we possibly could. And uh, hopefully I'll see you for the next one. Thanks very much. Look, look forward to the next one. You're welcome, mate. See you soon. Cheers, Tom. Now, non-football. Did you know there was an Air Guitar World Championship in uh, Finland? The Air Guitar World Championship. That, that stuff you do around the kitchen, isn't it? No one's around. You do a bit of... Keep your finger on it. Near the microwave. Um, it's been going in Finland since 1996 as part of a music video festival. What started as a joke has turned into a very serious draw and premiere event. Participants must play air guitar on stage for two rounds, with each lasting at least one minute. One song is chosen by the participant and the other one is chosen by the organiser. Don't think you can ad-lib. Don't try doing the drums and the piano sections as well, because you'll be out on your ear. Scores are out of six. The ideology behind the event is a simple one. Quote, Wars would end and all bad things would go away if everyone just played air guitar. I don't know who said that, but uh, they need locking up. That's it. We're all done here. My thanks to Silent Dave. You can find him on Twitter as SilentDave101. That's also the home of Jay, who you can look up as the bald gooner. While you're there, check out Mitch at Mitch Piotta and look up his blogs at Pain in the Arsenal. You can cosy up with Connor at ConnorJack2 on the Twitterverse and Paul is at PMacCap. Look up Lauren on Lauren D2710. Shout outs to Brandon Murphy, Dave Miller of Arsenal Attic, Simon DC, Let's Be Arsenal FC, which is twin to the podcast. Also check out Arse Devils for opinion and news on all things Arsenal. Please like and follow this audio version of the podcast and subscribe to the YouTube version of the show. Want to say hi, ask a question or take part in the show? It's an Arsenal thing for at gmail.com. More importantly, a big heartfelt thank you to you guys out there for all your emails, your encouragement, your support, whether you watch or listen. Until next time, look after yourselves and each other. And finally, remember this, North London is red.